Hello, everyone. I'd like to welcome you to the Redemption Tempe podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. On today's episode, Jim Mullins, pastor of theological and vocational formation at Redemption, will be interviewing Michael Goheen, director of theological education and scholar in residence, the Missional Training Center in Phoenix. They'll be speaking on Genesis, consumerism, and the true story. Let's listen in. So I'm here today with Mike Goheen, um, the czar of the Missional Training Center and the influencer and theological shaper of many of us in Phoenix, many, many of the pastors in Phoenix and uh, the, the people in the Surge schools. Um, Mike, would you just give us a brief bio? Just tell us your background a little bit. Well, I grew up in a Christian home, but rejected the faith pretty early and had a pretty, uh, I say, powerful, meaning by that, um, I can remember the experience well, pretty powerful conversion experience, return to Christ. And um, I suppose the one thing that's interesting about my immediate next immediate year or so after that is my love for the scriptures. I was reading the New Testament through about once a week and the Old Testament through about once a month. I did that for about a year and a half and really got to know the scriptures well. Rather boring life I was living at the time, but um, <laughs> but was uh, but the Lord knew what he was doing. Mm. And I went off to seminary hoping to become a cross-cultural missionary. Ended up uh, being challenged to stay in Canada, where probably the church is uh, more needy than most places in the world. So I was a church planter there for a while. I, I I had good response to my preaching, but I'm not a pastor type, and I realized that uh, that probably I would be better off preaching and teaching. So I started back with my PhD, and since that time I've taught in a number of universities um, and taught in a number of seminaries over the past oh, 35 or so years, and uh, I'm I'm just past 60 years old, and so what's nice about right now is for the last whatever years of my life I'm down here training pastors at the MTC and finding it to be one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in my career. So uh, that's a brief overview. I've been a pastor, been a preaching pastor, been a church planter, been an academic and one way of putting it is I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Mm. Um, I, I'm probably not a good pastor, probably not a good scholar, but I do both. Mm. You know, I preach my I preach my lectures and I teach my sermons, so I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of caught between those two uh, professions, if you want to use that language. Yeah. Well, while while you're sorting out what you want to be when you grow up, <laughs> what you've been doing in the meantime, your occupation in the meantime, um, as the Really, the, 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 the leader of the Missional Training Center has profoundly shaped the city mm-hmm. and has shaped us. Uh, in particular, um, you know, the books that you've written and the lectures. Um, the book that most people around here have read, I was estimating the other day, I think uh, several thousand people mm-hmm. have read Drama of Scripture here in this city. Wow. And so I want to start off with reading you a quote that you wrote in your own book and getting your reactions to it. So um, in the drama of scripture, this is what you say. (laughs) It says, um, if we allow the Bible to become fragmented, it is in danger of being absorbed into whatever other story is shaping our culture. And it will thus cease to shape our lives as it should. 
Idolatry has twisted the dominant cultural story of the Western secular world. If as believers we allow this story, rather than the Bible, to become the foundation of our thought and action, oh boy, someone's calling me, right in the middle of, of doing that, um, to become our, <laughs> our foundation uh, of our thought and action, then our lives will manifest not the truths of Scripture, but the lies of an idolatrous culture. Hence, and this is where you get really bold, hence, the unity of Scripture is no minor matter. A fragmented Bible may actually produce theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious idol worshipers. So tell us how that happens. That's, that's bold. Yeah. How, how does chopping up the Bible into little bits and rearranging it shape you know, uh, and, and encourage idolatry? First, a comment about that. Yeah. The publisher told me to take it out. Mm. He said, this is too provocative. Mm. My wife and both my co-authors said to me, no, keep it in. Mm. So I didn't know you were allowed to tell publishers what you wanted to do. It was my first book, so I didn't know that. So I told them, we're going to leave it in. And they uh, said, okay. So we left it in. And what's interesting is that quote has been quoted so many times in book reviews and in blogs. And I haven't seen one negative quote. Mm. I haven't seen one negative comment on it. And because it sort of hits hard at, in a very provocative way, mind you, it hits hard at why it's so important to read the Bible as one story. Mm. Um, when we fragment the Bible, and fragment, say, by using devotionals, and so we're reading devotionals, and we're jumping around from this text to this text, and each day we're reading a very different text, and we're looking for things that warm our, the cockles of our heart, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Or when, we're, or when we preach, and our preaching just focuses on one little text, and, and you, you never get a sense over a long period of time that there's any more than these little insights that come for script for mm -hmm. preaching. Or, or you get good moral lessons, or, or your doc, doctrinal lessons. What's happening is you may be, and, and don't get me wrong, these three things are important. Mm. To be theologically orthodox, to be morally upright, and to be warmly pious. I'm not taking a shot at those things. I hope every Christian is theologically orthodox, morally upright, and warmly pious. I hope all of them have, you know, keep their understanding of Scripture straight, and their lives are morally right and just, and they love Christ. I, I hope that for all people. But the point is, when those are extracted from the Bible, then what can happen is your whole life can be deeply shaped by the cultural story. And all cultural stories, whether it's American or where I'm spending time in Brazil or where I live a lot of my life in Canada or where I spend more some time also in Hungary, those four countries where I, where I spend a lot... Every one of them has a different has a different story shaped. They've been shaped somewhat uh, by a similar background, but all of them are idolatrous. And breaking the Bible up into little bits allows that comprehensive cultural narrative, even though we're not aware of it, to become the reality of our lives. And then we fit our doctrinal pieces, our doctrinal bits, our moral bits, our, our devotional bits into that comprehensive story. And the reality is that our lives will be shaped by some comprehensive story. Mm -hmm. that, that's the way God has made the world. 
That's the way God has created us, and some story is going to shape us. We're going to have some vision of where the world began, mm -hmm. some vision of where it's going, some vision of the meaning of history, some understanding of what's wrong with our world, some understanding of how it's going to be fixed, who's going to solve it, our place and all of that. We're going to have some vision of that, and sometimes we're not aware of it. Sometimes we're very unconscious about that, and it's below the level of our conscious reflection. Mm -hmm. But we're going to have some story shaping our lives. And the reality is that if it's not the Bible, it's going to be a cultural, our cultural story. And what has happened in North America is that we have allowed the Bible to be very privatized and to be this religious book that gives us doctrine, that gives us morals. And we haven't realized how that has allowed our cultural story to have such tremendous power. Mm. And um, probably Americans, Canadians are the most uh, are the are probably the most guilty mm. in allowing that to happen. And so my point, my quote was meant to be provocative in making this point that you want to be theologically orthodox, morally upright, warmly pious, and that's wonderful. But what you want is you want the whole of your life and every part of it to be shaped by the good news of Jesus Christ. Realize that Jesus is creator, that Jesus Christ is the ruler of history. He's the one that's that, that in the middle of history that's shown us in his death and resurrection the meaning of, of, of this whole creation and where it's going. It will accomplish that in the end as the judge. He's the one that demands the whole of our life. And as Abram Kuyper said, there's not a square inch of the entire domain of human life um, that, that Christ doesn't say about that. That belongs to me. And uh, when we allow the Bible to be broken up into bits, we can have our doctrinal, doctrine straight, but we don't have that comprehensive narrative shaping our vision of politics, our vision of economics, our vision of education and scholarship, our vision of sports, of leisure, our vision of art. Well, indeed, every part of cultural mm. life. So let, let me throw out some, some idols, some American idols and then you tell me maybe ways in which someone has chopped up the Bible into bits and used the Bible to justify the, the, that idol. Okay. Um, so let's start with consumerism. How do people take their Bible and proof text it to affirm this, the idol of consumerism? Well, sometimes you don't, I, I, you know, I, there's possibilities of, of, I think, some people doing that. Mm -hmm. I think the problem is not so much they would necessarily find proof text to back it up. Sure. As much as they would look to the Bible to speak to doctrine and ethics and not even speak at all to mm. cultural life. So probably instead of looking for text to back up a consumer lifestyle, the problem more likely is they wouldn't even consider how a consumer lifestyle is out of keeping mm. with God, the way God has made the world, what God demands. But um, in general, I'd say that, that the American vision of life is that uh, is, is, has been deeply shaped by humanism. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, you work hard. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have the resources in ourselves to solve our own problems. Uh, the, the greatest American humanist says, says exactly that. He says, humanism says that human beings have the resources to become their own savior and redeemer. That's pretty religious language. Mm -hmm. And sadly, most Christians 
would think of themselves, think of in terms of human, I have the resources to make a success out of my life, to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. If I work hard, I deserve this. And, you know, the problem, the reason there's people that are poor is because they're not working hard enough and, and so on. And I think that it, you can justify a fairly wealthy lifestyle that doesn't have to be concerned for stewardship of the creation or concern for the poor and thus be very wide open to a consumer worldview with this kind of vision of life by collapsing the gospel into the American success story. Mm. So, so in other words, uh, rather than just finding little verses um, to support consumerism, people could say that's the overarching thing that defines my life. It's the, the water that I swim in. Um, but then they're using the Bible to give them warm fuzzies and encourage them, and that encourages them. Yeah. yeah. I, it, I, there's a Chinese proverb, you know about water. You want to know about water, don't ask a fish. Mm. And if a fish is swimming in polluted water, that fish doesn't know it. Mm. Um, if you want to know about American society, don't ask an American, because they're swimming in it, and they're often not aware of the pollution in it. And so they're mm. lot. So probably most Christians wouldn't stand up and say, my... My life is shaped by consumerism. Mm. But what they would start to realize if they began to really examine a consumer culture in light of the gospel of Christ, and we see this all the time with the pastors at MTC, as you would know, Jim, that they start to examine their lives. They start to realize, man, my life is deeply shaped by this idol, and I wasn't even aware of it. And the thing is, it becomes a lifelong battle, and it become, can become very discouraging because there's no way to, you know, uh, we're talking here about sanctification or becoming increasingly holy, which never takes place fully until the new creation. Mm -hmm. And so it's always going to be a struggle to extract ourselves from this idolatry, and there's going to be no, you know, <laughs> there's going to be no victory, full victory, until Christ finally returns. Mm. Um, one of the things that comes to mind when when we're talking about this is the is the the need to name what those yeah. stories are that are competing against the Bible to be right. the, to to find all of life. Yeah. Um, so, what are they? How would you name the other stories that people might be living in rather than the biblical story? You know, there, there's a. You can look at it that way. You can look at it. You can say, look at Hollywood and say, there's five or six main stories that you find in every movie, in, in all the movies, and that's shaping us deeply. Um, I, and that's great, great way to go about it. There's a few people that have written books on that. I like to think in terms of the deepest tectonic plates or the deepest story that's shaping our culture. And in a nutshell, I would say that that story is a story. That um, that you, I would probably, if I was going to tell a brief version of it, a quick version, mm -hmm. I'd want to start uh, at the beginning of the 18th century. And I'd want to say that as we come to the end of the scientific uh, revolution, that Christianity is starting to lose badly. And what's the reason for that? I think there are two reasons. I think that Christianity, on the one hand, um, wouldn't accept the results of science. Um, they were holding an archaic worldview, wouldn't 
accept the results of science and look very foolish. The second was the religious wars made it look like the Christian gospel could not provide a unity for society. And so what happens is science, which is a very good thing, moves to the center of Western culture and it becomes the unity that begins to bind the culture together. Now science, when you say that, you say any, when you take any part of culture and it becomes a unifying kind of thing. It begins to take on a role much bigger than God meant for it in creation. So this good part of creation, science, now becomes the way we're going to save ourselves. Mm. And so uh, people at that time were beginning to think in terms of the way science would take us to this new paradise. And here's the interesting thing. The United States was founded in the middle of this and is the only country founded very deeply in terms of an enlighten the Enlightenment vision. And so science, in two ways, it produces technology that enables us to overcome the problems of our world, but also make, enable us to have a rational society, economic, political, judicial, educational. And if we are faithful to this, then we're going to be able to build this better world. Well, there's many, there's many stories, plural, of progress in the 18th century, but the one that would become dominant by the end of the 20th century was one told by Adam Smith that said, look, if we use science and technology to make a much more rational economic system, we can build a materially prosperous world. That was implemented in the 19th century Industrial Revolution. By the early 20th century, we were producing so many goods and people kind of thought, we don't need this many goods. Mm -hmm. And so the question was, what do you do? Do you slow down, do you slow down um, production or do you increase consumption? And it, took, it, it, was, it was the vision of many in the early part of the 20th century that said we should just slow down production and, it, and increase the other parts of our lives, deepen friendship, marriage, art, etc. But there are others who said, no, let's increase consumption. And that's when marketing really begins to sort of make people feel dissatisfied. There's a very famous article written by a guy who uh, owned Ford uh, way back in the early part of the 20th century entitled Keeping the Customer Dissatisfied. Make him wow. or her believe that they don't have enough. Another person in 1955 wrote shame, uh, with no shame in, in an economic journal that we have to make people think that the consumption of goods and experiences will give them spiritual satisfaction. And so people had to learn how to consume. Not anymore, but then. And so this vision of, this vision of life then... Uh, where you have a free market, where you have a rational economic society um, that will produce you know, real prosperity. Uh, this, is a, this is the way into a uh, consumer worldview. And so I think there's many stories that fit within that one big story mm. uh, where people seek various kinds of experiences mm -hmm. or, uh, or various kinds of goods to, be, to, to fulfill that void that they need you know, that, that's there, that spiritual void where they need God. And so, you know, for example, somebody might pursue um, uh, romantic relationships and sex as the way to fulfill that deepest longing and find that. And it can very easily be fit within that bigger consumer narrative where they're looking for, for various kinds of experiences. And of course, all good, all, all idols have a good dimension of creation. God made the world to be delighted in and enjoyed. And the consumer worldview understands that well, that this is a very good creation. God, as a loving father, said, here's a good world, delight in it, discover its joys, and enjoy it. Yeah. And what has happened is we've made those things the center 
rather than our knowing God uh, in, in Jesus Christ the center and allow those kind of things to find their place. Hmm. So if you're going to take somebody on a tour, you can take them anywhere in the United States, anywhere, and you are going to show them evidence of idolatry, evidence that, that this that this this country, this world is um, in, is in many ways mm-hmm. bowing down to this idol and living within this Western story. What would be some of the places that you'd take them to? You might take them to um, some cityscape, mm-hmm. especially a city like New York or something. And you might know, you know, have a we could have a little lesson here that mm-hmm. architecture always bears witness to what people, to the idols of a culture. And you might, or, or what people value most. And you might point out that in the Middle Ages, churches were always the tallest buildings, and they were the tallest buildings because people would not allow anything to be built bigger because that was to dominate the, the square. Mm. But today, of course, it's, the, it's buildings that are the banking, it's the econo- buildings that are owned by Companies that are economic in their focus, that are the tallest, most powerful buildings in the mm. world. And so I, I talk about, that'd be one way you could do it. You could take people to a mall and just, you could talk about different dimensions of the mall and the way that it is forming a pattern of life and the way it's you know, calling for a certain kind of lifestyle. You know, this, this, uh, this narrative of economic growth and consumption is no longer just a North American Western narrative. It's spreading into the cities of our world. And I was recently in Indonesia, and I sometimes think that, that these, these cities are outdoing the West. And I remember being in this incredible uh, um, mall there in Indonesia. I've not seen anything quite like it in North America. And it just literally made me physically ill as I realized this whole thing was in, 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 with no shame, was set up to make consumers of people. And that this was, this is saying that the chief end of man, if you you know the Westminster Confession, which is a Presbyterian confession of faith, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and know him forever. But these malls are set up to give us a liturgy that says, what's the chief end of man? It's to consume Mm-hmm. And to find your ultimate spiritual satisfaction in the consumption of goods and experiences. So maybe a, a mall, maybe a cityscape. Yeah. Well, idolatry uh, always bears fruit in injustice. And, you know, dishonoring God almost always turns into dishonoring your neighbor. Right. Um, a lot of times what people see when they see the malls and those sorts of things, they see nice, glitzy, good-tasting food, yeah. entertaining things. But um, there's a cost that's being paid by somebody. Yeah. Where, where's that cost being paid in the world? A lot of places. I'd say that the, there's a growing reaction among younger people, not necessarily Christians, but among younger people, that there, that, that there is a price to be paid. And there's more recognition of this price to be paid. The World Bank says if everybody lived at the level Americans lived at, the world would la- the, our resor- world's resources would last about 10 years. Everybody lived at the level of Canadians about 12 years. Everybody lived at the level of Australians about 15, 17 years. That's not a lot. I mean, that, yeah. that, that's not sustainable. Sure. And so you start to realize that uh, the non-human creation 
that God loves, think of Romans 8, the non-human creation is groaning. And, it, what, and so it's bearing the weight. And uh, we've often seen the non-human creation as just the resources we can have for what we want. We've, we've, we've viewed it as sort of our, our, play, our play box, or, you know, where we have our toy box, where we can have whatever we want out of our own good, and not realize that in the beginning of a biblical story, we're given this creation to be good stewards of. Um, so I think that. I think that there's a growing gap between rich and poor. Um, on the world stage, but also within almost every country of the world, this growing gap between the rich and poor, and so there, uh, th this is not this is not just um, a result of some becoming wealthy. Uh, it's it's a result of economic structures. Like for example, if you uh, the, all countries now must participate in the global market mm. uh, to be sustainable, and if they don't, they're in trouble. Mm. Yet in the global market, there's only four currencies that you're allowed to buy and sell with. And so those of us who have those currencies, what the yen, the pound, the euro, and the dollar, those of us that have those, we're in great shape. But those who don't have that have to purchase that currency first. And so in effect, is paying a dollar, let's say a dollar 10 for what we pay a dollar for, and you're off in the countries you can't afford. So what you've got is unjust structures that are leading to this kind of, uh, of, uh, of injustice, I believe. And I think that uh, the way we see it most in North America, because we're often aware, unaware of these, and they're so, the, the, the uh, structures are so complex, it's hard even to, you know, I can make this case, I can hear some people listening to this saying, no, nah, this is nonsense. Um, it's very hard to make this, make this like a nice, neat mathematical problem where I prove it. Um, but I think the places where we can often feel this is the deep psychological problems mm. that people are growingly having, the pain that they're feeling. And uh, what was it? Goldie Hawn once said that everybody in New York had their own shrink. Mm. And the idea was that we're all, that we have such deep psychological, there's a lot more deep psychological wounds that are being, that, and I think we're bearing the sin, bearing the uh, wounds of our own rebellion there in psychological terms. I think social kinds of, uh, social kinds of concerns, um, breakup of the family, for example, is something that evangelicals, Christians are often concerned about. It's very much a part of all of this. So I think there's a lot of ways that we bear the wounds of our rebellion uh, from the non-human creation through uh, the social issues we're facing and growingly probably the economic issues. And if we continue worshiping economic growth, um, one day that's going to collapse. And mm -hmm. one day, you know, the God that we've been serving for so long is no longer going to deliver what has been delivering for a little while. Yeah. Well, you certainly have me uh, mourning these things and seeing how bleak it is. So give me some good news. <laughs> so here's what I would ask you to do. Can you tell us uh, just a short form, uh, five acts, um, <laughs> Tell us the good news. Tell us the true story of the whole world. <laughs> um, I think God made the world very good. Mm. And he ordered it. And he, and he gave human beings a, a, this marvelous task of being able to discover all these good things he put in the creation. Mm. You know, sort of almost, I like to picture God rubbing his hands at the end of, of, of his creating work and saying, oh, wait till they discover fill in the blank. Wait till they discover human relationships. Mm. Wait till they discover football. Mm. Wait till they discover, if you're in Brazil, soccer. Mm. Wait till they, if you're in Canada, hockey. Wait till they discover 
uh, putting sounds together in music. Wait till they discover art and beauty and so on. And so God made this world to be delighted and enjoyed and for us to know him and love him and come back to him as our father and throw our arms around him and say, thank you for this wonderful world you've made, this home you, you've given to us. Uh, thank you for this delightful life. And so he meant for us to live these lives of thanksgiving, of worship, of communion with him, communion with one another, stewarding the creation. Mm. And as it were, I like to think of that as act one, the mm. curtain coming down and wow, what a, what a life, what a world God has created for human beings to live in. But act two, human beings, instead of living out that faith, uh, obedience, instead of living out their place, decide that they can decide what's right and wrong. They're going to decide who to serve. They're going to decide how to live. And they make that choice. And making that choice doesn't just bring, make human beings, oh, they made a mistake and they made one disobedient act. It plunges the whole world into a mess. Um, and so uh, at the end of Act 2, I like to speak of the fall as Act 2. At the end of Act 2, we're in the middle of a big mess. The whole creation and all of human life has been deeply affected now by sin. And God could have just said, well, we tried, then destroyed the world and said, let's start again. Or he could have just said, I'm not going to do that with that again. But instead what you see in Act 3 is he begins and sets out on the long road of redemption. And that long road of redemption is going to have a destination. It's a long journey, but it has a destination. The destination is that he's going to make the creation again to be what it was meant to be. That's good news right there. Mm. He always made, already made that promise in Genesis 3, and now he sets out in this road. He says, the first thing he does is, I'm going to create a people that will embody that life and that blessing and that good news. And he chooses Israel, gives them that calling and that task. But as you trace the Old Testament story, you see Israel, because the deepest root of the problem was the sin in the human heart, Israel fails in their calling to be that light to the nations. They're plunged into the same darkness of the nations. Instead of being distinctive, they take on the same idolatry. Mm -hmm. And so at the end of Act 3, which I would say the Old Testament story of Israel is, uh, you've got the failure of Israel, and they are now in judgment. You know, God has sent, it's like God has said, I'm going to send out a lifeguard to save the creation, Israel. And they go out, and they, they're now drowning. So the world's drowning, they're drowning with the rest of the world. So what's God going to do? And what God does is says, I'm not going to give up on this. Um, and I'm going to send someone to represent Israel and to fulfill that calling and that task. And that's, of course, the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes with this outrageous claim that is either true or the most ridiculous claim ever made. And that's that the, that the God, the creator of the universe, is embodied in him. He, that is who he is. I mean, that is ridiculous or it's true. And those mm -hmm. are the only two options. Mm -hmm. And he makes this claim. And the claim is that he is here, God in the flesh, to renew this creation. And he does it in the most unusual way. He does it by being humiliated in the cross and taking it on himself, the, the whole of the world's evil, and taking its full blunt and of its force on himself. And in doing so, does away or conquers evil, and then rising from the dead, inaugurating that new creation, that where the destination is going. He's the first one born into that. And so that resurrection, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus become the turning point of the true story of the world. That's why it's why the good news is centered in those events. Because hmm. that's where, where evil is done is conquered and the new creation begins. 
And then he gives his spirit and he gathers his people and says, okay, you failed the first time and now I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to renew you from the inside out, give you a new heart, and I'm going to send you to live in the midst of the world. And he says, and I want you to now embody the, this good news of where I'm taking history, a world that was uh, very good at the very beginning, a world of justice, a world of mercy and kindness and compassion, a world of joy, a world of shalom and peace, a world where people know God, love one another, care for the world. That's where it's going. I want you to embody that now as a preview of that coming kingdom. And so Act 4 is the coming of Jesus Christ, and Act 5 is the church sent into the world to make that good news known. And Act 6 is when Christ returns, completes his work, and when the creation is renewed. Mm -hmm. And in resurrected bodies, we enjoy the endlessly thrilling adventure of living what God intended for humanity from the beginning in this creation. And so uh, we will enjoy all those things. I, I might even be able to play a cello like my son mm -hmm. or a jazz pianist like my son. I might be able to, mm -hmm. I might be able to do those things, although now I'm aesthetically challenged. Maybe I'll be able to work on those things for a long time. Mm -hmm. But we're going to be able to be able to delight in discovering what God intended from the beginning, but in communion with him and communion with one another, taking care of the creation so it's no longer groaning but rejoicing with us. Wonderful. That is good news. That's pretty good. Nice. I believe that good news. So do I. Um, but what a lot of people do with their understanding of the, the biblical story is they, they, they have an armless story. They cut off creation, mm. and they, the one arm of creation, and they cut off the other arm of new creation, of restoration. Absolutely. They, they, their, their biblical story starts with, we're sinners and we live in a sinful world, and Jesus came to save us, to take us up to heaven. Right. Um, you know, what, what's... What are, what, what are the, I guess the question I'm asking is, what fruit, how will that change someone's life if they believe that is the story, a truncated, armless version of the story versus the full, robust story? It's good. And, and also, you notice that not only does it begin with sin and end in what theologians have called the intermediate state, heaven. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean the place where people go when they die until the resurrection of the mm -hmm, body. Mm -hmm. Not only is it a story that doesn't have creation that's, that's grounding that story and new creation is the ultimate hope, it's also a very individual story. It's a very personal story. It's, it's, not, it's not even sin as the way the Old Testament views sin as cultural idolatry or the way Paul himself in Romans 1 viewed sin as the way it's shaping Roman society or the way the Genesis understood sin, Genesis 3 through 11, where it culminates in Babel, the way a culture is shaped. It's, it's a very individualized kind of sin. And therefore, the death of Christ becomes highly individualized. It's for to save me as a sinner. And the resurrection, well, we don't quite know what to do with that, but he had to rise from the dead, supposed to show he was God and to, to save us. And so it becomes a very selfish story. It can become a very selfish story as well. Even though we're deeply thankful for what God has done for us, it's about us. It's very narcissistic. It's about what God has done for us. End of story. Hmm. Now, we ought to be deeply thankful for what God has done for us. But as soon as we realize, we realize that we're part of this bigger story, and it's not about simply being blessed. It's being blessed to be a blessing, hmm. to, 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 to uh, uh, serve others. And as soon as you start to realize that, 
then it, the story is not only uh, do, not only do you add should you be adding creation new creation back into it, but you should understand even sin and the work of Christ in our redemption in these terms that are much bigger right because it's salvation with the restoration of the creation yeah. and us as a part so i think i like to think in terms of the biblical story gives us a vision that's cosmic communal and individual mm-hmm. and in that order it's a cosmic story that begins with the creation ends with the new creation it's about god's cosmic renewal uh, jesus says in matthew 19 the renewal of all things Peter says in Acts 3, the restoration of all things. Paul says in Colossians 1, the reconciliation of all things. This is a cosmic story. But then at the center of that story is a community that is called together to embody that good news. Mm -hmm. Running right through the whole story, right at the center, it is a community called to embody that good news. And we're part of that community if we've believed and been baptized into it. But then the individual is included in that cosmic story and in that community that embodies the good news when they believe. That's how Paul puts it in Ephesians 1.13. He says, and you were included in mm. Christ, included in this when you believe the good news. And we've often chopped off the com- cosmic, the communal, and we made it down to when we believe the good news, you know, we got these things. So it's an armless story in the one hand, but it's also in the middle. It's a truncated body, mm. if you will. So it has not have an arms and the body is truncated yeah. or emaciated. And so what you need to do is put the arms back on, but you need to then build up the body as well. Mm. And so the whole story is a story of this marvelous creation that God intended us to delight in and love and love one another, ending with God restoring that, and in the middle of people struggling against idolatry that destroys life. Mm. And that's the point, that idol. it's not like... We're people that um, are naysayers. Oh, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And we want to squelch life and blessing. It's the opposite. It's that what we see is that idolatry destroys life. Hmm. And when you see that idolatry destroys life, we hate idolatry because it destroys people we love and the creation God loves. And so we need this big vision of life to have a big understanding of what God has called us to and how to live. And creation and new creation is going to restore a much deeper, richer, bigger, I think much more exciting understanding of what Christ has accomplished and what it means to be a follower of Christ. Amen. Yeah. So one of the things that most of the listeners will be doing this year is starting a reading plan, whether they're a, a Bible reading plan, whether it's in Surge or at Redemption or any number of places. Um and they're starting in Genesis. So let me throw a few questions out okay. about Genesis. So Genesis 1, Genesis 2, what what would the original audience, the original hearers be hearing when they read those things? I mean, I don't think that they're having age of the earth debates and no. those sorts of things. What's going on? It might be surprising to some people, but Moses, who uh, was likely the author, lived maybe 3,000 years before Darwin. Might be a surprise to some people. And so he wasn't, first of all, concerned about Darwin. He was concerned about the people he's speaking to. And the people he's speaking to have been shaped by Egyptian idolatry for 400 years. We know that in a variety of ways, but we know they're deeply shaped by the myths of, of, of Egypt. And so basically, I would say that what they're hearing is the God of Egypt, the gods of Egypt are not the gods. This is the living God, the creator of all things. Humanity and the role and the meaning to life that the Egyptian culture gives to me, 
It's false. The true understanding of what human beings are is image of God, made to care for the creation and develop it. The world that's described by these myths, that's not the true world. The world is, that's described in Genesis 1 is very good, as ordered, and so on, a God permeated by, with God's presence. That's the real world. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was a challenge to the Egyptian worldview. And I dare say that the more we start to read it that way and then seek in our own context to listen, we're going to see that it's going to begin to challenge a lot of our idols as well. Not just Egyptian idols, but the idols we have in this world. So I think that it's, it's a challenge to idolatry, and it tells us that God created the world. He made it orderly. He made it very good. He made human beings like this. But it doesn't tell you how he did it, how long ago he did it, and, uh, and in what ways he did it. It's just saying that God did it. Um, other questions are open for discussion, but it's primarily saying this is where the world begins. This is the God you are to serve. This is the kind of world you live in. This is what it means to be human. Hmm. So uh, with that context in mind, as the people are coming, they're out of Egypt, they're moving into the promised land, what, how does that shape some of the other things that we see in the, the book of Genesis? Like, um, for example, how does that make sense of uh, Genesis 12? And uh, walk us through Genesis 12 and Abraham getting this commission from God. One scholar has called the book of Genesis a prologue to Israel's story. Hmm. So that Israel's story begins when they're in Egypt, and they are redeemed from Egypt. They're brought to Sinai. They're given this incredible cosmic calling. You'll be the people of the true and the living God. Go live it in the midst of the, of the world. I mean, what a calling. Hmm. And Egypt, this little slave nation, who is this God? What's he want with us? I mean, how much do they know about God? It's hard to say. And so it's like Moses saying, well, let me tell you your story. Let me tell you where all this began. And he, so he goes back, as it were, to Genesis 12. And he says, okay, here's the story. Your father Abraham, I chose him. He was an idol worshiper beyond the river. We're told that in Joshua. And he was like everybody else, but I chose him out of that idolatry. And I gave him this promise. I'm going to restore to you the blessing of creation. And I'm going to make you into a great nation that will live that out. And you are therefore to bless all nations. That's your calling and their task. And then he unfolds that patriarchal story from Genesis 12 to 50, telling us about these patriarchs. And the center of that story is this promise given in Genesis 12, repeated in Genesis 18, repeated again to uh, Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, Isaac's son. And the promise is this, I will bless you and I'll bless the nations. That becomes the Read as were the binds Genesis 12 to 50 together. He's saying, they're saying, these are your fathers. These are the fathers of the nation of Israel. And, and so there's a lot that, that complicated stuff that I'm not, I can't go into that he's doing by telling them about these, these father figures of Israel. But he's basically telling them their story, saying, this is, this is why I've done for you what I did, because I gave them this promise. But, you know, going back to Genesis 12 isn't enough. Because then he could just be a tribal deity for all that matter, for that matter. So he goes back further and he says, the reason I'm doing this is I'm the creator God. I made the world and I am the, uh, I, I'm the creator of all races, all nations, all people, the whole world. And this is what Adam and Eve did and, and the mess. And then I think Genesis 3 to 11 describes the darkness and the mess of the creation, hmm. which incidentally you might notice is quite a bit longer than the rest of the Bible put together. 
Genesis 3 through 11 is much longer than the rest of the Bible. It's a long period of time. Mm. And in there, we're seeing this growing darkness, this growing mess against the backdrop God gives the promise to Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. There will be a light in the midst of that darkness that I've just described. And then the story of Israel's patriarchs. And then Genesis 50 ends with the with less than 100 people going into Egypt that's the end of the story. And the book of Exodus, the story of Israel, opens with Israel in bondage, which are now millions of people, and in, in, uh, in, but they're in bondage. And God is going to act for them. And there's this big 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of the book of Exodus. So the book of Genesis is like Moses saying, you want to know your story? Let me go back to the roots. Let me show you the God who you're serving in Genesis 1. Let me show you what happened and why there's this big mess in the world that we're living in. Let me show you the results of that mess and that decision to not... And let, let me tell you the calling you have by showing you the promise I gave to your, your patriarchs. Hmm. So final question. Uh, what advice would you give to people who are reading Genesis? What should they look for? What things do people tend to emphasize, but they don't need to emphasize those? Those aren't central things. Like, what advice would you give to the people who are reading Genesis? I would say, first of all, that when you're reading the Genesis narrative, like any historical narrative, it's written very carefully. In other words, it has in itself a theological message. The way the story is told. It's not just sort of history randomly told or told like the way we write history. It's a very careful selection of events, a very careful interpretation of those events, a very careful arrangement, emphasis, de-emphasis of things to tell a story. And so when I'm reading the book of Genesis, I want to know what is the theme that is binding the story together, the story together. And when I read Genesis, I like to think in terms of the first 11 chapters of Genesis and the primary theme as I understand it is that uh, is um, a doc what sin is doing to our world even though but God maintaining his hold on the creation the promise he made to crush the evil forces that have been unleashed and so the but but what we're watching is the origin of sin against the backdrop of God's good creation. We're seeing the spread of sin. We're seeing the results of sin. We're seeing God's judgment. We're seeing what sin is doing to our world. And then I would say when reading Genesis 12 to 50, we're thinking in terms of the promise made to Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the land. I give you a land. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And that threefold promise of being a great nation of having the land and of being blessed is for the purpose of bringing blessing to the nations. And so I think you start to see the unfolding of that story and you start asking, okay, with that promise as central, what are we seeing? And we're seeing all kinds of ways that an unbelieving uh, patriarchal people, uh, the patriarchs of Israel, who are struggling to believe, would seem to be thwarting God's plan. You know, the lies, of, the lies of Abraham and Isaac about their wives, the, the kinds of fear that they had, the kinds of, all kinds of ways in which you see a thwarting of this promise. But you'll notice that the main name of God throughout these chapters is El Shaddai, which means Almighty God. And it means that God can destroy every barrier that stands up against him keeping his promise. And so the story keeps going. 
It keeps going. God overcoming one barrier after another. Abraham's unbelief. Isaac's unbelief. They're not heroes in this story. They, yes, they did believe, and and there and occasionally it's pointed out in the New Testament that this is the father. But the marvelous thing about Abraham, the father of our faith, is that he struggled hard to believe. He struggled to really believe God's promise, made all kinds of foolish decisions in light of that. And the way you see God is overcoming even that and forming his faith and keeping the story going. Hmm. Well, Mike, I'm really grateful for you taking the time to do this interview. And I'm grateful for the ways in which you've helped us know that when we open up the pages of Scripture, we are not reading a story, but we are reading the story, the story that gives meaning to every aspect of life from from uh, what we're going to eat tonight to the art that we make to the work that we do to how we live and how we die and am grateful for your work and uh, we'll probably be stalking you for another podcast interview in another few months so thanks Mike thank you Jim